0: Uh, 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 I I was just saying that, yeah, it's uh, nice to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation we have today.
1: According to researchgate.net, you're doing a PhD on the ways in which big data is being used to govern populations as part of China's social credit system that's true
0: yeah that's correct yeah yeah
1: um so you know hardly any discussions of any civil liberties issue happens these days without um someone mentioning the Chinese social credit system um Mm. I'm sure I've done it or at least just saying we don't want to go the way China's going and people what they mean when they say that is they don't want to be surveilled and stalked by technology um, mm. to, com- you know, to be forced to comply with whatever the government wants them to do. Um, I think you're, Alex, you're the perfect person to tell us what this system is, what it isn't, and how it works and the direction it's mm. going in. Um, and I was just reading your essay on Medium about how mm. you learned Chinese, which was such a great essay. <laughs>
0: oh thank you very much i appreciate that
1: i'm gonna read you something i found from a guardian article this is more than two years old saturday the 2nd of march 2019 well that's three years old um China has blocked millions of discredited travellers from buying plane or train tickets as part of the country's controversial social credit system aimed at improving the behaviour of citizens. According to the National Public Credit Information Centre, Chinese courts banned would-be travellers from buying flights 17.5 million times by the end of 2018. Citizens placed on blacklists for social credit offences were prevented from buying train tickets 5.5 million times. The report released last week said, once discredited, limited everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, is the experience of or, or the threat of being discredited something that is hanging over the head of every citizen of China? Or is this some local city initiative that the Guardian's writing about?
0: This this is actually a really great place to start, uh, yeah. Jonathan. And over the past three and a half years of studying this, um, you know, I I often have to start from a point of of unweaving and um you know uh, untying a lot of the knots of misunderstanding. And I think that that article, uh, the quote that you just read from there, illustrates the problem that we've had with dominant media portrayals outside of China is that. There's a conflation of a number of dis- different issues there, and then see so local government initiatives are often conflated with this national blacklisting system. There's also confusion around, you know, citizens being the main target of this thing. That's actually very incorrect. Citizens are not the main target of the social credit system, and there was actually a Merricks Institute uh, report that was released um, about a year ago now, and the researchers were looking at mentions of target groups across national and provincial level social credit um, system documents between around 2003 and 2020 and what that clearly illustrated is that 73 percent of mentions were of companies 13 percent were mentions of government entities and only 10.3 percent were mentions of the social credit system targeting individuals and by and large, the, the, the major impacts have been felt on uh, companies. So from this side of the equation, the social credit system is something that's being leveraged to ensure that uh, companies in China are adhering to uh, government regulations uh, and, and dictates. There's been a tendency, for example, if I set up a company and I have food quality issues um, in one province, and I'm punished in one province. That doesn't stop me from going to another province or another city and setting up shop there, and then continue continuing to p- to pump out poor quality goods, and um, you know, or committing fraud or deceiving people. And this is something that people in China are very, very sensitive of. Sure, yeah. Um, it's also something that the government is 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 trying. Um, to to regulate and the social credit system on one level is an attempt to to regulate uh these businesses um both both domestic and foreign businesses that are operating in china and ensuring that they adhere to legal regulations Um,
1: yeah i was going to say let me bring you to let me bring you back to the um being prevented from buying a train ticket question
0: okay so Let's go back to the national level system. Okay, so in 2014, the Chinese State Council, which you can think of as like the the highest kind of executive branch of the Chinese government released the planning outline for the social credit system and essentially they encouraged, um, you know, some of China's big tech giants inclu- including Ant financial. Um, But also local governments and government ministries at the national level to go out and start experimenting with um, creating blacklists so creating lists for people that are breaking certain regulations um, and for experimenting with um, quantified scoring and rating. um, systems now. The way that the national level system works, which, as you mentioned, people being barred from riding uh, the high-speed train or catching flights, this is part of the national level system whereby um, different government agencies have signed memorandums of understanding with one another, which will essentially say, so they've all created their own respective blacklists that are targeting um, regulatory abidance in their domains. So you might have like, Uh, China Railway create a blacklist for people that, um, you know, have uh, steal other people's seats on trains, for example, which is another very contentious issue in China that citizens are sensitive of, but also for, you know, breaking rules on trains, maybe going into, um, in in the context of an aeroplane, maybe going into the cockpit, right, these different kinds of of, uh, rules and laws. Um, So China Railway will establish a blacklist but then you've also got for example the supreme people's court who has set up its own blacklist targeting court defaulters so if i'm someone for example we let's take the food quality issue if i'm a, a legal representative of a company that um, has been shown that there's um you know have committed food quality um uh, bypass food quality re- regulations and i'm ordered to go to court but I don't show up or I refuse to pay the loans that I owe, I refuse to pay the fees that are owed, then I'll be put on this court defaulters blacklist. And then what happens is through these memorandums of understanding, China Railway and the Supreme Court collaborate. They add and they share the information about the target, right, either a business or an individual. They share that information and then the person receives a cascade of punishments Uh, or rewards. So if you're abiding by regulations, then you'll receive certain rewards. If you're a company, it means that you'll receive, um, you know, perhaps reduced tax tax rates um, or or, or inspections by government officials. Um, You'll you'll gain access to government procurement opportunities. So you can receive benefits for behaving or or, um, for uh, adhering to rules and regulations. But you can also receive a cascade of punishments and restrictions um, in the case of, of as you mentioned someone you know breaking the law uh on 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 the railway yeah uh, okay so here
1: we have you know we have in australia we have agencies of different agencies government that share information Mm -hmm. i know that tax office and immigration share information etc etc the difference seems to be that there's like a scoring system so would i know if i was you know in shanghai would i know that i'd been given a a score you know a bad score on something or a good score on something like how would i find out
0: it's it's, it's not, it's not uh, correct to say that there's a score. Like they're currently, they're, they're, and this is one of the biggest misconceptions about this. Some commentators seem to imagine that there's a magical algorithm that's drawing from, you know, AI cameras and internet surveillance all over the country to calculate a score that determines everyone's place in society. But really, like the national level system is, which is the most consequential both for businesses and individuals, is predicated on this blacklist and redlist system and it's it's not deduced by any kind of ai it's typically deduced by like the administration in question so if the administration in question say take for example the supreme people's court they someone is ordered to go to court they're made to pay a fee or pay their dues and they don't pay then they'll be added to this blacklist the blacklist is shared with all other agencies that have sh- that have signed this memorandum of, of understanding, okay? And so for the Supreme People's Court blacklist, this court defaulter's blacklist, this is the earliest it was established in 2013 and it's the most comprehensive. Most people that have been punished um, at the national level through blacklists um, are court defaulters, right? The people that have been ordered to go to court have refused to pay their dues and been added to this. Or could it and be that the they, they can't afford, afford to pay?
1: Like they're poor?
0: So they, yeah, well, this is the, this is then the interesting thing, the way that the state frames it is that people that are added to the blacklist are framed as what's called Lao Lai. And Lao Lai, this is a derogatory term for someone who is wealthy that has the money to pay back what they owe, Right. But they refuse to pay back that money. So the way that the state uh, in, and in propaganda and in state media and often the way citizens interpret, um, you know, the moralizing agenda behind this is that people that are added to the blacklist are, um, you know, essentially selfish individuals that have the money that refuse to pay their money. Now, they, this isn't entirely some kind of fabrication right? Um, as I mentioned, given the short amount of time in which China has become very uh, rich and pro- prosperous, this has led, um, you know, some businesses um, to, you know, a lot of cases of fraud, as I mentioned, food quality issues, uh, environmental issues, with limited repercussions for um, people that are working for these companies. But in particular, you know, the legal representatives, the bosses of these companies, Um, being able to get away with, um, you know, breaking rules and regulations and getting rich in the process. Mm -hmm. And so people are very concerned that these wealthy people um, that are working for these companies can get away with causing social harm and social damage with no repercussions. And that explains why a lot of people that I've spoken with in my own research um are quite supportive of that element of the system now yeah, it's complicated yeah. it's complicated because it's not just issues of a financial nature like as you mentioned it could be that someone is blacklisted by china railway for refusing to give up their seat right and then they're restricted from other areas um in in chinese society some of their other privileges are taken away and that also reflects that that there is this broader dimension to the social credit system that is targeting uh, uncivil behaviours or or people breaking uh, social etiquette um, beyond the purely the realm of finance. Although in recent years there has been efforts to ensure that, um, for example, some of these local government experiments um, to ensure that people can't actually be punished for having um, So on the local level where there is some quantified scoring and rating of citizens, that they can't actually be punished for having low scores.
1: Okay, so you said at the local level, does that mean you've got local governments that are really keen on piloting new ways to use technology to um, manipulate people?
0: In this planning outline for the social credit system, they essentially said to local governments to go out and start experimenting with applying scoring and rating dynamics um, to solve Again, uh, local regulatory issues uh, in their in their local contexts and what this led to uh, since that time and before that time was, you know, local governments coming up with a range of different behaviors that they want to reward people for such as like donating money or donating blood, some kind of charitable efforts, but then also, you know, crimes because they're interpreting this agenda of um, social credit. There is no definition for social credit or credit uh, at the national level. So essentially they were given a very long leash to experiment with, you know, what, you know, trying to isolate behaviors that they want to rectify or they see as a problem or that people in the area are concerned with. Yeah. So what are the good
1: ones? What are the sci-fi ones?
0: Sci-fi ones as yeah, say.
1: but what are the good one good examples you've encountered of
0: okay, so there's there was an example uh from Suzhou a couple of uh years ago now. That's a city where, um,
1: south of Shanghai, is it?
0: Uh yes, it is. Or it, yeah, it's very close to very close to Shanghai. Yep. And in Suzhou, um, I believe it might have been the Ministry of Public Security, but what they did was they published the names and faces of Um, citizens that were wearing sleepwear in public right wearing pajamas pajamas yes okay and and what they what they said was this is uncivilized behavior and what happened was there was extreme pushback from residents in sujo who complained and said this is ridiculous they're wearing you know pajamas this is an uncivilized behavior and that caused um the sujo ministry of security to to offer a apology and actually take down the photos. And there's there's other instances of this. In fact, in uh, a a, a municipal government uh, coalition comprising uh, Beijing, Tianjin, and Hebei, I believe, but don't uh, quote me on that, but comprising three different local governments, they actually ran a survey where they surveyed residents in their jurisdictions about what behaviors they thought Um, should be included in their local government systems. So what kind of behaviors people think are uncivilized? Because if you've been to China, not necessarily as much now, but in the past, a lot of people are worried about, um, you know, people spitting openly on the ground, uh, people worried about uh, others, uh, people from the countryside essentially coming to the city and not understanding uh, social norms in urban life and cutting in line, spitting openly, Quarrelling with people; these kinds of behaviours that are not necessarily captured by the law, but people are still very concerned about. Um, some people believe, and some local governments believe, those behaviours ought to be this ought to be subject to, uh, you know, social credit um, punishments and and rewards. Now, as I mentioned, only in the past couple of years has there been dramatic efforts by the central government to scale back this level of experimentation. And as I mentioned, the state council, I believe two years ago, said that local governments um, cannot punish citizens for having a low score, right? So now the state of affairs with local government systems that are based on quantified scoring and rating, um, it's more like a loyalty reward scheme. And there's there's very limited uptake in terms of citizens that are actually participating in these schemes.
1: Um, is there an element I mean sounds to me like there's an element there of like high status people putting in place a system to punish and sort of educate low status people like rural people yes. who don't know the right way to behave mm. Mm. Um, is that is that I'm is that on, on the right track there like yeah we're talking,
0: yeah I yeah. would definitely say so and look there's you know uh, something that China scholars have long observed and noted is that the relationship between the state and the people in China is very different um, both historically, even in pre-modern China, and today, um, is very different from the kind of relationship we have with the government in a country like Australia. So, where the country, where the government in Australia is viewed as our representative, and not as an actor that resides above society, but that emanates from with, within it, you know, comprised of we the people. In China, the relationship is more paternal, and the government has a responsibility. To ensure that the people not only behave according to the laws uh, and regulations, which often people in China refer to as the bottom line of society, but they also the, the the government also has an imperative. This is how it views itself. In the if you read the the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party, it refers to itself as the vanguard of the people, which is this Leninist idea that a group of scientifically educated elite yeah. can lead. The rest of society in the direction of social prosperity, and so the, the the view in China is that the government doesn't only have a responsibility ensuring people abide by the minimum requirements of the law, but that they improve their moral quality. That everyone's uh, collective uh, moral quality is improving. That that is actually a way that you that you that you uh, can can establish a, hum, a harmonious society and so that's a very crucial distinction and I think that that distinction um, is very important to consider when we consider these kinds of projects uh, in China and how they're perceived uh, and how they're engaged with by the citizens um, and by the people that are living under these kinds of systems because you know my research specifically focuses on public attitudes and experiences with the social credit system I interviewed Thirty people throughout China, um, in twenty different um, provinces, uh, in twenty different c- c- cities, and and um, fifteen different provinces, and overwhelmingly, there is great support for um, the social credit system. Now, obviously, propaganda and you know the the, the media plays a role in those uh, interpretations of what the system hopes to achieve, but many people have also received uh, tangible benefits from um the social credit system yeah and actually the approc- and this is an, another important to note that the approximate proportion of blacklisted companies individuals and government entities in china between 2018 and 2020 um, it's only one to two percent of companies in china that had been black blacklisted less than 0.1 percent of government entities And around 015 to 0.3% of total citizens annually have actually been subject to blacklist restrictions of the kind that we've been describing.
1: Mm -hmm. But uh, would I know if I was subject to to it? Like, would I be informed or would I just turn up to buy a train ticket and discover, to my surprise, that I'm on some list?
0: Right. So this is another thing. Sometimes, you know, if you're not... um, in the past you wouldn't receive some kind of notification. And there's actually some funny propaganda videos. Um, it's really interesting, man. Like the, the, in Chinese propaganda, they use a lot of cartoons and there's this one particular um, propaganda video that was released of this guy, um, little cartoon figure going to try and buy train tickets or, or catch a flight or, um, you know, do all these kinds of different things in society. Um, that people view as, as a privilege to do. And he is surprised at every turn when he finds, oh, I'm actually not allowed to do this. And that does illustrate that in the past uh, and still today, sometimes people do not know if they have been black blacklisted. However, again, the majority of people that are being blacklisted are often like the legal representatives of companies um, and their company is blacklisted first and then the legal representative or some other employees of that company uh, will then face their own blacklisting so mm. at that level they would be aware but there is instances as you mentioned yes where you might show up and all of it and realize that you that you've been blacklisted
1: and how do you get off the list like you you, you know what if uh, some problem was ironed out and you know you've re- mm. you know you you fixed the whatever it was that your company did wrong and yeah how do you get off the list can you
0: yes yeah so there are credit restoration and appeal processes um, that both citizens and businesses uh, can launch however they're primarily launched through uh the credit china platform which is this national level website that is essentially disseminates blacklist and redlist information and also information about the social credit system in general. Now, yeah. in terms of credit restoration, there is um, a process by which, depending on the nature of the severity and the nature of um, the crime uh, and of the regulation that you've breached, there is a process that can span from anywhere between, you know, six months to a couple of years where you can... Um, essentially be taken off the blacklist although for some crimes uh and and some breaches of regulation the the most serious ones it appears that there is no uh restoration that is possible for these for um, such companies or, or citizens which is which is very which is very worrying.
1: Uh, what, just about that sort of dynamic between the government and mm. the public, what I'm a bit confused about sometimes, some of the examples seem about how, like, beneficial this this national system is. Um, it seems to be really, I mean, the, the examples are so trivial in a way, like the the video of a train passenger who refused to give up a seat that another passenger had reserved, mm. like, why couldn't the train guard or the you know the, the conductor or whatever just ask them to you know to leave like what why do we need some elaborate technological system and you know you said before something about someone who might barge into a cockpit which is also a weird one because wouldn't you have yeah. someone from the cabin crew stopping like why do you need an elaborate system of isn't that against the law anyway like wouldn't you be able to just charge someone
0: yeah and and you're you're touching on another very important distinction that we have to kind of uh grapple with and come to terms with is that a a lot of studies now ethnographic studies but a lot of other studies uh, in the field that have interviewed citizens that have done surveys with people there is a broader sentiment uh, in Chinese society that some people say stemmed from uh, the Cultural Revolution and and then other people say has been exacerbated by China's transition to a market economy um, where people feel as if there is a broader uh, crisis of, of public morality. And so the examples that you're just giving then Often people are, you know, pointing to these kinds of behaviors as being an indication that there is, you know, a, a loss as in in the transition to a society of strangers. You know, we've got to appreciate that the tra- the transition from China being a mostly agrarian society to the majority of the population, a massive population residing in urban centres, is a very, very, very short period in time, and that adjustment. Um, is still taking place, and I think for the collective psychology of people in China, there is a sentiment that people are worried that there is a inherent loss of, of trust between people, and and that there isn't a sense of of public uh, duty or civic uh, civic etiquette um, that is shared between strangers.
1: So interesting, isn't and- it? Yeah, the Cultural Revolution, like, kind of yeah. burst that uh, such a, considered to be such a problem now. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. And and the other thing is that, you know, and this this goes back to very, you know, longer trends in, in, in socialization in China where there, there, there's a perception that if you're someone that steals someone, another person's seat, that is clearly their seat, that um, you know that that isn't your seat and you're doing it anyway. And even in the face of people telling you that you need to move and that isn't your seat that you're still refusing to do so, that that indicates your defunct moral quality. And if you have a defunct character, then it's very likely that if we don't punish you extensively or if that you're not restricted in other ways that you will just go on to deceive other people or to steal other people's seats in the future or that you know in different areas in different domains that you will continue to be an untrustworthy person. And I think that is a very key idea that distinguishes you why people might be in favor of comprehensive restrictions of these kinds of people. Now we mentioned, I mentioned this Lao lai figure, right? This Lao lai, this idea of a person that um, is very wealthy, has the money refuses to pay other people and then might go on to commit further fraud or go on to commit further deception. Now it isn't a complete fabrication of propaganda. People are worried that this, these kinds of people exist uh, in society and People perceive the system to be targeted um, at those kinds of people. And and again, this is all needs to be contextualized and framed against this rapid, short amount of time in which China has transitioned to a market economy, to a society of strangers, and also given the the traumas of the cultural revolution that are still so thoroughly embedded in the collective psychology of, of many people in China
1: um and well that's so fascinating that's so intriguing isn't it um and and is there potential or has there been much discussion of the potential for people in positions of authority right now um to abuse the system and to target people that are their rivals or um you know or, or a threat to them or just make it a tool for corruption Right now, I mean, isn't isn't it potentially? I I know it's an anti—it's sort of on the surface an anti-corruption technique, but uh, is it subject to, you know, um, interference from some city boss or you know local government official or whatever? Yeah,
0: yeah. This is another really good point um, that you've raised, Jonathan. And um, you know, I've I've seen very very few accounts, but there have been instances um of the kind in which you speak of although i haven't seen any you know reported on in china i have seen some for example an abc report that came out a number of years ago now that was looking at for example a a journalist um that was investigating some kind of corruption issue and that they had then been been blacklisted i would have to revisit the case because i wasn't too familiar with that and that's probably the only thing that comes to mind Hmm. that you speak of of course we always have to be concerned in a one-party state. The, the the transparency and the checks and balances in terms of the abuse of this system by high-level officials, uh, officials, I think, is definitely there. I just think that that they have other ways um, and more sophisticated techniques and 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 techniques of of um, ensuring that their specific interests are met that don't include the social credit system and. You know, there are other surveillance projects in China um, such as those that we're seeing in Xinjiang and that were developed in in Tibet um, and Xinjiang and elsewhere um, that are much more coercive and that are based on uh, the profiling of ethnic minorities um, and that are used to suppress political dissidents. Does that fall within the scope of the social credit system? There hasn't been sufficient evidence that I've seen or come across um, to suggest that it is being used in that. Um, that kind of a malicious way. Yet the the other interesting dynamic is that, uh, as I mentioned before, primarily the social credit system is targeting businesses, but it's also targeting uh, government entities. And this illustrates this interesting dynamic in China that you have between central authorities and local governments. A big problem in a one-party state, but also historically in China, is how do you ensure local governments and local official, uh, officials are adhering to central edicts, right? And so it's interesting because uh, one of my colleagues that I mentioned, Chunxiong Liu, has done um, has has come uh, up with survey data illustrating that citizens in China, right, members of the public, are often more in favor of the social credit system than government officials. And you might scratch your head and think, well, why the hell would that be? But what this illustrates is that the social credit system is also informing uh, broader reforms of the Chinese government bureaucracy. And it's a way for the central governments to ensure that the local government officials um, are adhering to uh, standards, regulations, and procedures that are set by the central government right um, so interesting it's it, it, yeah it's a very fascinating dynamic and it it also ties in with these broader as i mentioned uh reforms that are looking at the reform of the chinese government bureaucracy reducing the size of the bureaucracy and also reducing the the, the functions of, of of the government as well
1: fascinating as someone who studied it are there, you know, are there any things that you take away from looking at the way it works over there and, and you mm-hmm. think, well, this is actually something um, that informs me when I look at my, what my own government's doing here in Australia, like, uh, yeah, just take a step back and reflect a bit on lessons for us, if you, if you will.
0: Yeah, Jonathan, look, uh, one of the most interesting things in in the past three years of studying this subject, whenever I've talk to people you know in my daily life whether it's friends or families or recent recent acquaintances strangers about what i'm studying and i mention the word social credit system i kid you not in nearly every of these conversations people reference they one of one of three words they will say black mirror uh orwellian or 1984. And what this really clearly illustrates is the power that popularized narratives wield in our construction of social reality and our interpretation of what is actually taking place in, you know, other parts of the world that we've never been to, uh, with people in, 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 in cultures and political systems that we have limited knowledge of, how strong these popular Im- imaginaries are in shaping our understanding of reality and it also reveals i think our own deep-rooted cynicism and pessimism when it comes to the application of technology in the governance of society today and we don't have to look far for that's me
1: i'm cynical and pessimistic about it
0: yeah yes yep yeah and i think that these references are reflecting these the broader pessimism that's already exists in our own society and that look, we don't have to look very far. You look at trends in voter surveillance. you look at trends in surveillance capitalism. you look at how we are nudged, heard, herded and conditioned um, on through uh, commercial social media into choosing you know products that we might not otherwise have bought, but also in choosing to vote for politicians that maybe we wouldn't otherwise have voted for. We don't have to look very far and I think that people are recognizing that uh, surveillance of everyday behaviors is now a common feature of our existence and it poses very fundamental questions to liberal democratic values uh, such as freedom of choice, uh, issues of privacy, all of these things and you know it's difficult because are there things that the social credit system are there elements of you know our values that it transgresses? Definitely. Are there elements of the system that we should repudiate, I think a hundred percent. But we also have to come to terms with the fact that you know one-party authoritarian states, not just in China but elsewhere, are leveraging technologies in a proactive way to evolve their model of politics, to evolve the way that they govern. And I think that a big problem that we are facing today, a big crisis in liberal democracies, is that we've assumed a reactive approach to the application of these technologies in society. We've either let corporate hands dictate uh, how this is how these technologies develop, right? Mm-hmm. How big data is used, um, and how surveillance is to, um, you know, what elements of our lives should be subject to surveillance and what shouldn't, has been decided largely by corporate entities. the The thing that we have to consider is how can we use if we want to avoid chi- the situation in China. Firstly, we need to thoroughly understand what it exactly is that we're criticizing. Mm-hmm. We need to thoroughly understand the context, the history, and the people that the system over there is affecting before we have a inherently negative view and, and a pessimistic view of what's taking place. And then, secondly, we have to consider how can we begin to use technologies in a proactive way to reinforce and evolve our own model of po- politics, which is ruled by and for the people. Okay, because yeah. if we don't, our own governments are going to use these same technologies against us, um, or We will continue to act in a reactive way by tailoring laws and regulations after the fact when the damage is already done and a lot of damage has already been done.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, on behalf of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, authored a a letter or a submission opposing something called the uh identify and disrupt bill which is now the law yes, in australia yes,
0: I'm familiar with it yeah
1: you're aware of it yeah yes, and so before yeah. we start getting excited about china these laws which are being passed in a yes. bipartisan manner here should be getting a bit more attention from yes. the public here well it's, it's um, very
0: easy jonathan to point at a boogie and like you know this is a clar- characteristic if not of you know media and propaganda uh, in china but also australia but also just a characteristic of us as human beings is that it's easy to point at the tribe over the hill or a people that we're not familiar with and kind of portray them as a as a boogeyman right it's much harder to take a look at what's happening in our own context and come to terms with what that means for our own civil liberties uh and identities as democratic citizens and and respond accordingly
1: yeah brilliant Uh, i learned a lot thank you very much for that alex that was very interesting uh intriguing um so your work uh uh, your your phd work is being done at the university of wollongong um, and and um, i will link to uh your page and a couple of the articles that i referenced um including the one about you learning mandarin um, and uh, I just, um, yeah, encourage people to check it out. Thank you, Alex trout Goik and uh, thanks for joining us on Loose Cannon. Uh, but please do get in contact. Um, the email address is loosecannonpod at gmail.com. Uh, the new Twitter is at John O Loose Cannon, and also Parnell's Twitter I'll put in the show notes, and we'd love to hear from people on guests to have on. See you all next time.